นโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดมังสังขังนมัสสะSo, some of you will be familiar with the teachings that are encoded in this discourse that we just recited, the Buddha's first discourse, the Tamachakapawatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the law, and we'll recognise it as the uh, very subtle, very elaborate analysis of. The process of transforming suffering into freedom. The, the end of the discourse is the announcement that the Buddha's first disciple, Kondanya, realized freedom, and, and that realization of freedom actually, in his case, took place while he was listening to this discourse, this analysis, this uh, articulation of what. Is suffering what causes suffering? Really, actually, not merely philosophically, but what's really happening? And, and this analysis is the the foundation of all the main Buddhist traditions, uh, all the other teachings that the Buddha gave, and uh, as they're recorded and taught in the different. Buddhist traditions—they all are based on these four noble truths, as they're called, yeah. as, as described. These four noble truths, as described in this Dhammachaka Sutta, and mm. the fact that you know, Buddhism is so appealing to so many people uh, is pretty obviously because we all suffer. We all. This is something we all know about. Mm. What we've just been reciting here, this explanation, this analysis of this that we all know, is these days, perhaps more so than ever, put in front of us. And it's not more so than ever that we're suffering, because, in fact, there's less likelihood of. Suffering from starvation or disease or war than probably ever before in all human history. However, thanks to technology and the way we pay attention, we have these endless, vivid images and detailed descriptions of intense and horrific suffering. When the Buddha gave this teaching on the the Possibility of transforming suffering and realizing freedom, transforming suffering into wisdom, you know, wisdom being the key. He wasn't, of course, presenting it as a belief system, not even as an intellectual argument to convince ourselves with, but a clear, precise description of the faculties of consciousness that need to be honed down 
if we want to reach this awakening, this possibility that the Buddha reached and, and the awakened disciples who reached. And uh, it's, it's important that when we contemplate these teachings that we, we consider how when the Buddha gave them, they were to uh, his five companions on the spiritual journey who were each, every one of them, really seasoned explorers of consciousness, like seasoned mountain climbers. They had their equipment down. They were fit. They had uh, unshakable self-confidence and, and respect and commitment and highly refined uh, concentration and so that's particularly worth registering because if we feel inspired to pick up the Buddha's teachings and encouragement to contemplate suffering and pursuit of freedom and transformation and realization, but we don't have the equipment ready, well, we don't, we're not fit enough, we don't have the right understanding, it's, uh, you know, if we try to achieve what others have achieved before us but we're not really ready then well in this case you know, our motivation to, to, to realise the freedom from suffering may be very wholesome we may have a wholesome motivation for doing it but we could end up collapsing under the burden of compassion fatigue which actually happens a lot these days and many people in the caring professions in fact I read an article in the newspaper recently about the subject and how evident it is for many people with this bombardment of vivid imagery and detailed descriptions of the suffering of the world and the use of social media is just endlessly presented with pictures of tragedy and horror and then not being properly prepared people do fall into a state of numbness or disintegration or depression or uh, disillusionment where they may have had wholesome motivations to start off with they end up somewhere that they really don't want to be and yeah, it's called compassion fatigue. That's a real thing. It's a, but that's just a real thing as, as somebody who decides, you know, a bunch of people decide they're going to climb Mount Everest and, and they make it to, you know, maybe they make it to base camp and, and then they just party for three days, passing around the chillums and, and eating all the food and, and then expect to set out on the rest of the journey in a state of exhaustion. Uh, well, that's that's not clever. That's not skillful. That's uh, to take on the task of really embracing suffering, the consequence of unawareness. To really dig deep into the actuality of that all per- pervasive condition. 
that's driven human beings to the most desperate endeavors you know, to take it on uh, skillfully we need to prepare ourselves we need to be very careful not not naively thinking that you know, we've done a few retreats or got a bit of a grasp on some spiritual teachings and so we turn around and and dive into an exploration of consciousness and, and investigation of suffering and and hope that it's going to work. It takes more than hope. Mm. Hopefulness has its place, but hopefulness needs to be backed up with uh, you know, other abilities. And so one set of teachings that probably, again, many of you are familiar with that describe some of these abilities is what we refer to as the, the four Brahma Viharas Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka loving kindness, compassion empathetic joy and equanimity and just as, as I was suggesting taking on some serious mountain climbing, we would prepare ourselves with the right kind of equipment, the right kind of food, uh, the right kind of physical uh, ability. Well, likewise, the spiritual journey advises us to cultivate these abilities and equip ourselves with these strengths. Now, on first suggestion, you know, like for instance, loving kindness, say, well, that's very nice, and you know, maybe we chant the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness, and just as a mother with her only child, I think, oh, that's very nice, very loving, and very sensitive, and so on. That's not just nice. You know, the it's essential. It's essential that we're in touch with the strength that comes from knowing this capacity human beings have to be loving. There's mm-hmm. a strength comes from a conscious appreciation of the ability to wish beings be well. Conscious well-wishing, that's metta, mm-hmm. loving-kindness, conscious well-wishing. And yes, the Buddha gives the image of a mother with her only child because it's selfless for all sorts of psychological and biological and cultural reasons. The disposition of a mother with her only child is one of selflessness. And, And that selflessness, if we really understand that, if we have access to that, Ability. If we've access to that ability, it's a form of strength. It's a form of strength, and it's also a form of protection. It protects us from selfishness. Selfishness actually makes us weak. You wouldn't want to be climbing a mountain with people who are obsessively selfish. It's teamwork. Selfish people are dangerous. Selfless people a really good company, the most, the ultimately good company, the ultimately beautiful friend is somebody who is 
truly selfless, wisely selfless. So the Buddha encouraged us to contemplate and cultivate this ability and consciously recognize the strength that comes from knowing that we can be caring, we can be kind. Children, understandably and accurately, are aware that they need to be cared for. That's understandable and appropriate for children. They need caring. Adults need to know that they can give caring. They're the source of caring within us, within consciousness, as is this potential to be caring. And if we're not in touch with it, we can feel very weak. We can feel deprived. Sadly, some people grow up not having that potential mirrored or demonstrated to them. They don't receive loving kindness. They don't receive selfless caring. And it doesn't reflect or trigger or activate that ability within them. And they feel, understandably, disabled spiritually, emotionally and various other ways uh, disabled so setting out in this journey of transforming suffering into the realisation of freedom the awakening to that reality which is inherently free from suffering uh, part of the preparation is to cultivate a conscious connection with this ability, to draw it out. As you may know, the word education, educare, means to draw out, to draw out an understanding, an appreciation of this potential. Children, as I said, they know they need to be cared for. They do, actually. They're vulnerable. Until quite later in life actually need caring but as adults what we need is to know that we can be caring we need to know we have that potential and it's a certain strength and if we don't have that well then the second of these four Brahma Viharas these potentials the divine abidings as they're called karuna or compassion is very difficult to access compassion is empathy in the context of suffering. The third one, mudita, is empathy in the context of joy. That's something else. But compassion is empathy in the context of suffering. The ability to consciously open up to the suffering of living beings, whether it's our own suffering or the suffering of others. To turn towards it instead of turn away from it. If we don't have a connection with our ability, that potential in our consciousness to be caring, to be loving, then maybe when we're faced with suffering, our own or others, we don't feel strong enough, we don't feel able. But if we do have that connection, then with some skillful training, skillful discipline, we can cultivate this turning towards suffering and looking at it fairly and squarely, looking at the suffering of the world not turning away from it and wringing our hands and saying it's all too terrible, which is what some people do, not naively exposing our hearts to too much pain and then crashing with compassion fatigue, but skillfully, mindfully, sensitively opening up and feeling 
it and letting it be a motivation, again, towards selfless action. So, again, what compassion can do, just as, you know, as a mother with her only child and the well-wishing she has for her child can motivate selfless action, so compassion likewise can motivate selfless action. And it can protect us, also it can be a protector against insensitivity. People who don't have compassion, you know, somebody who's insensitive, surrounded by people who are suffering and just not register it, just not see it. And it may well be out of this lack of connection with the ability to be caring, they don't dare to open up to suffering. They don't feel safe enough. They don't feel strong enough to really submit themselves to this aspect of reality. There's plenty of suffering around. But to really feel it, to really allow our hearts to register it, our eyes to see it, our ears to hear it, our mind to consider this mass of suffering. Let it move us to tears, but not become lost and pulled down by the sadness. Sadness is an appropriate response to such a sorry situation as we find ourselves in all these beings moving around, hurting each other. What a tragic situation when it's completely 100% not necessary. There's plenty of food, plenty of medicine, plenty of accommodation, plenty of access to education for everybody. We don't have to cut down any more trees or kill off any more animals. You don't have to eat animals. There's plenty of food. We have the technology and the intelligence to stop polluting the planet. We have all the resources we need, and yet we huge amounts of humanity, not to mention the other animals, less intelligent animals, all they do is fight or heedlessly indulge and create harm. Harm to themselves, harm to each other and harm to the planet. Why is that? Well, certainly it's not too much loving kindness or too much compassion. It's not too much well-wishing or too much sensitivity. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So the cultivation of loving kindness, connecting with the heart's consciousness's potential to be caring, to wish well, and that selfless well-wishing, and to see what a strength it is, and then have that enable us, prepare us, equip us for opening to feeling the suffering without contracting. Suffering is like cold. It, makes, it can make you contract. You can contract and constrict and obstruct the flow of energy, obstruct the breathing, you know, contract the muscles. But that's not an obligation. With the right kind of approach the right kind of discipline we can go in the opposite direction we can create space we can create perspective we can bring warmth we can bring caring we can bring sensitivity the heart doesn't have to collapse around pain 
on a physical level, probably all of us know that we have that option. When you know, there's, there's pain, you can constrict and contract around it and make it worse, or with some effort, you can soften around it. Telling ourselves that we have to relax can sometimes sound like a judgment and some sort of an injunction, and, and if we fail at it, then there's something wrong with us. And, yeah, telling somebody to relax is not always the most helpful thing. But it can usually be very helpful to tell ourselves and encourage each other to sometimes soften instead of becoming rigid, to soften around pain. And whether it's physical pain, using the breathing, using the quality of attention, the quality of kindness and caring, to engender the body-mind with a sense of softening and sensitivity mm. in the face of suffering. Mm. And then the third of these four Brahma-viharas, mudita, is empathy in the context of joy. Mm. Taking delight in the well-being of others. That's a clear and well understood word in traditional Buddhist cultures. It's not, at least I can't necessarily think of a word that really encapsulates this meaning uh, so thoroughly in, in English. We use the word sympathetic joy or empathetic joy or empathy. But another way of looking at it and considering it is, is to think of the opposite. We're all familiar with envy what that feels like. That's not taking delight in the well-being of others. So from that perspective, we can perhaps intuit what's being referred to here. Empathy in the context of joy, when we see others being joyous, doing well, being successful, to share in that delight is a capacity, is a strength, and also is a protection. Mm. Protects our heart mm. from envy, mm. from such an unpleasant mind state. Mm. Insensitivity, uncaring, envy, these states. Although we probably can all relate to them, if we stop and contemplate them, you probably realize how draining they are. They actually make us weak. They don't contribute to strength, to confidence, mm -hmm. to a sense of safety. Mm -hmm. So on this journey of investigating suffering with the aspiration to transform suffering, our own and that of the, of the world, into wisdom, into clarity, into competence. Yeah. Yeah. These are the kind of potentials we need to feel for, look for, contemplate and cultivate. Mm -hmm. Loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy. And the fourth one, 
Mm. Equanimity is perhaps not necessarily so easy to get our heads around, not to mention our hearts. If we don't have, for instance, the ability to delight in the well-being of others, if we don't have mudita, then it's very easy to misperceive these potentials, falling into synthetic kindness or some synthetic approximation for compassion. Because we don't really know how to truly wish beings be well, we can have a kind of a a slightly tainted version of these things. Like we could be too interested, for instance, in being successful. Like well-wishing, may all beings be well. Well, what happens if they're not well? May all beings be free from suffering. What a wonderful, glorious thought. Your heart swells with warmth and kindness and caring. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be happy. May all beings be well. May all beings not be separated from the goodness of their lives. And and tears of joy flowing down our cheeks. But what do we do if beings don't cooperate? What do we do if beings insist on suffering? Again, this is where the risk of compassion fatigue becomes evident. And it's one reason why equanimity is essential. And also one reason why equanimity is more difficult to cultivate. It requires giving up or letting go. It requires letting go of our insistence on gratification. We can be giving off thoughts of loving kindness and expect to be successful in generating well-being. We can be generating thoughts of compassion and expect to be successful in freeing ourselves or the others from suffering. But that expectation is born out of attachment to desire. And with equanimity, there's a sense of clear boundaries in regards to what is my responsibility and what is not. Where's the edge? What is my responsibility and what is somebody else's responsibility? This is, and this is why when we cultivate this quality of upeka or equanimity, the Buddha encourages to contemplate the law of kamma. I am the owner of my kamma, born of my kamma, related to my kamma, abide supported by my kamma. Whatever kamma I shall do, for good or for ill of that, I will be the heir. All beings are the owners of their kamma, heir to their kamma, born of their kamma, related to their kamma, abide supported by their kamma. Whatever kamma they shall do, of that they will be the heirs. Now, that on its own could sound very cold-hearted and uncaring and uh, uh, 
not so mindful, not so skillful cultivation of equanimity could indeed take us in that direction. But that's obviously not the direction that the Buddha wanted us to go. He taught the four Brahma-viharas. Yes, the heartwarming, heartful, inspiring, uplifting first three, but then this fourth one of equanimity is really essential. We need to know that even the desire that beings be well or the desire that beings be free from suffering or the desire that beings not be parted from their good fortune, if we're still clinging to such desires, we spoil them and we hurt ourselves. It may initially on some level feel good, but that doesn't mean to say it is good. It doesn't mean to say that it's wise. It doesn't mean to say that it's going to be effective. It's like lying in the sun. It can feel so nice, but it can also give you cancer, not to mention sunburn. So we need a wise perspective on desire so that we see when loving kindness is skillful, when compassion is skillful, when empathetic joy is skillful. And if we don't, well, then we, we feel justified wanting beings to be free from suffering. You really get high on that. So really altruistic, lovely, uplifting thought and the feelings that come with it. But if we don't see our relationship to those feelings accurately, if we don't really see that we're seeking identity in those good feelings, then it's not going to serve the purpose that we aspire for. the quality of compassion will be compromised the quality of kindness will be polluted so this the Buddha's teachings on equanimity, they're not a small thing in fact when you study the Buddha's teachings and you look at the seven factors of enlightenment the last one what is the last factor of enlightenment? equanimity that's number seven And the ten paramis, the ten forces for transformation. What's number ten? Upeka, equanimity. It's, it's easy to get wrong and to somehow imitate it with a kind of, well, it's not my business, uncaring, heartless perspective. So from that way of seeing, it's difficult to develop. But also, perhaps more significantly, it does require renunciation. And, and generally speaking, renunciation is not what I want to be doing. I, the conditioned, deluded ego, does not want to give up anything. I just want to get more, more of what I want sooner. That's what I like. That's just the way the conditioned personalities configured. It's not wrong, it's just that it needs to be understood. Mm. Like the image I regularly suggest we can contemplate is like when we have a wound and the wound is healing, it really feels itchy and you really want to scratch it. You really, really do. There's no doubt about it. But that's part of the process of healing and if you scratch it, you can interfere with that process and 
So what do we do? We learn to inhibit that impulse, not because we don't feel anything, not because we're too stupid, but actually quite the opposite, but because we've considered it carefully. So yeah, I really want to scratch that itchy wound, but I'm not going to. Dogs do with the mange. That's why you've got to actually wrap their paws up, or cats, you've got to wrap their paws up and so they can't scratch, otherwise they don't heal. Mm. But we have potentially the intelligence, which means that we can carefully exercise restraint, inhibiting the impulse, not just denying it or repressing it. That's a recipe for disaster. Not following it. That's a recipe for disaster. But the middle way of containing that energy of desire with the understanding. The energy of desire is contained with understanding. And so the process of transformation can unfold. From my perspective, I might want transformation now. I might want all beings to be radiant and loving and kind and empathetic and, and beautiful and happy. But that's not reality. I might want that for myself. But that's not going to happen overnight. But the process of unfolding, just as you could imagine a bud, a flower unfolding, it doesn't just pop, suddenly it gradually unfolds. The unfolding, when unfolding, evolving, emerging is harmonious and beautiful, then it's usually imperceptible. Mm. It's usually not even noticed. Sudden unfolding, sudden change is often disharmonious. Mm. So these four Brahmaviharas are teachings the, the Buddha gave and encouraged us to dwell on to recognize them as potentials within ourselves, having recognized them, then to invest in the the cultivation so that we have the skills, we have the connection with these inner strengths. We're not inherently weak. Even when we feel weak, even when we feel vulnerable, maybe that means we're overexposed to too much suffering, too much negativity, too much pain. Maybe it's time to pull back and to refresh, renew, soften, be still. Learning how to still the heart and still the mind. These four Brahma-viharas are encouraged as objects for contemplation to help bring about samadhi, to help bring about deep stillness, deep inner nourishment. If we have these abilities, have these potentials, then it's less likely that as we encounter the sadness, the suffering uh, of our inner and outer worlds, it's less likely that we're going to be overwhelmed by it. I thank you very much this evening for your attention. (coughs)